Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDY podcast. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. You can listen to all of the past episodes by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, in 1798, the Fire Department of the City of New York is formed by an act of the state legislature. In 1857, Harry Howard is named Chief Engineer of the Fire Department. And in 1964, a fire strikes the subway tunnel of the Times Square Shuttle. I know that the department, as well as just about anyone that has interest in it, marks its origination as being in the year 1865. In fact, some will argue that it was in that year that its name, Fire Department of the City of New York, and the acronym FDNY were established. Well, neither of those things are true, and here's why. We recognize that prior to 1865, the department was a volunteer organization, and that year marks its transition to a paid firefighting force. But its name was not FDNY. It was changed to the Metropolitan Fire Department, and it included, at least on paper, the Brooklyn Fire Department. Legends abound about the competition among the original volunteer companies, along with documented incidents of the firefighters fighting among each other rather than fighting the fire they all responded to. That, along with several other factors, prompted the New York State Legislature to pass a law entitled An Act to Create a Metropolitan Fire District and Establish a Fire Department Therein. It put control of the department by the power to appoint its board of commissioners in the hands of the governor, taking it away from the mayor. But to understand this fully, we have to reach back all the way to 1731. That was the year that the Common Council decided to do what the people in Philadelphia did. They purchased two fire engines from Richard Newsham in England. Once they arrived and were housed in sheds on either side of City Hall, if a fire broke out, all citizens were expected to turn out to help pump the engines to throw water on the blaze. But six years later, the council thought it would be better if a group of individuals were designated to transport and operate the engines, with everyone else continuing to form a bucket brigade to supply them with water. As a result, 30 individuals were appointed and were to be called, quote, the firemen of the city of New York, end quote. As the city grew, so did the fire department with additional engines being purchased to ensure that there was at least one, and eventually two, in each ward of the city. By 1798, there were 23 engine companies and two ladder companies, with about 500 total members. As a group, they petitioned the state legislature for them to be incorporated. And on March 20th, 
an act to incorporate the firemen of the City of New York, was passed. It read in part, quote, They hereby are ordained, constituted, and declared to be a body politic, in fact, and in name, by the name of the Fire Department of the City of New York. End quote. So there you have it, in black and white, by state law. The FDNY is formed. It remained so until the 1865 Act, creating the department as we know it today, albeit under a different name for the following five years. So was it 1731, 1737, 1798, 1865, or 1870 when the FDNY began? I'll leave that decision up to you. I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. If there's one figure that stands out as an icon of the FDNY beyond all others, it's Harry Howard. Orphaned as an infant, Harry was adopted by Sarah Charlesworth Howard, and lived in the Manhattanville section of the city. He was a buff, then known as a runner, starting in 1835 with Peterson Engine 15. When he came of age, he joined the company. In 1850, he was elected foreman of Atlantic Hose 14, and in the same year was elected to the position of assistant engineer in the department. He set up his office in the 6th Ward Police Station because it had a fire alarm telegraph. This gave him notice of fires prior to the ward bells being rung and would allow him to respond quicker and to more alarms. He would assume command of all large fires until the chief engineer was on the scene. It is said that his overexertions in this regard undermined his health. He was elected chief engineer in 1857. He only served in that capacity until 1860, But during his tenure, he enacted sweeping reforms that not only professionalized the Volunteer Corps, they also brought changes that could still be seen today. One of the first actions Chief Howard enacted was to set up bunk rooms in the firehouses and required companies to staff the quarters each night with a complement of members. Just as the example he set back in 1850 by quickly turning out to all fires, he demanded the same of the members, including overnight. As such, fires were attacked and controlled much sooner. In fact, fire losses in the city dropped to an all-time low, such that the insurance companies actually lowered their premiums. He was also responsible for bringing the FDNY into the modern age by acquiring and equipping it with steam fire engines, prior to which all apparatus was hand-pumped. 
the chief believed that the general public did not appreciate or acknowledge the work and sacrifices, including the supreme sacrifice, by the volunteer firemen of the city. He favored establishing the fire department as a paid force. Although he retired before this came to fruition, in 1866, he appeared before the state legislature to lobby for an increase in firemen's salaries. They approved a raise of 25%. Throughout his retirement, Harry Howard remained very active with the fire department. Consistent with his concerns about the welfare of the volunteer firefighters of New York City, he made the first and largest donation that established the Fireman's Home in upstate Hudson, New York in 1892. The home still operates today and is open to all volunteer firefighters in the state. It is located at 117 Harry Howard Avenue. Chief Howard died of pneumonia at his home at 94 Elm Street, now named Elk Street, on February 5th, 1896. He is buried beside his adoptive mother, overlooking the fireman's plot in Greenwood Cemetery, so that he can continue to watch over his men as he did during his life. I recommend you visit the New York City Fire Museum to see a display of artifacts from the chief, including his life-size portrait, commissioned in 1860, that hung in the chamber of the New York City Common Council before becoming part of the FDNY collection. One final note. While Harry loved the FDNY, his heart belonged to someone else. Her name was Henrietta Mosier. They met when he was 24 and were engaged to be married. But something happened, and Miss Mosier called it off. Harry never recovered from the pain of losing her. He sent her gifts every year. Neither ever married. And when he died, Chief Howard left everything he owned to the true love of his life. Hi, it's Jennifer Brown again. I'm excited to announce that due to overwhelming popularity, the museum is extending the special exhibition, Firehouse, the Photography of Jill Friedman, through this summer. Showcasing award-winning photographer Jill Friedman's moving collection of photographs documenting New York City firefighters on the job in the 1970s, the exhibition features images contained in Friedman's book, Firehouse, which was released in 1977 and garnered rave reviews, highlighting the photo's honesty and grit that captured the danger, tragedy, heroism, and camaraderie of being a firefighter in New York City. To create this display of heroism and heart, Friedman lived among the firefighters in the South Bronx and Harlem for more than a year as she chronicled their work. The exhibition also features a video of Jill discussing her passion for her work and for the FDNY. For more information, please visit the museum website at nycfiremuseum.org. While I served as the executive director of the New York City Fire Museum, my daily commute put me on the shuttle between Grand Central Terminal and Times Square twice a day. The shuttle makes it possible for travelers to move between the subways on the east and west sides of Manhattan. And each time I traversed that tunnel, I was reminded of a devastating fire that occurred there on April 21st, 1964. The call came in at 4.46 a.m. Arriving FDNY units encountered heavy smoke, heat, and sparks 
emanating from the subway grates in the sidewalk on the north side of 42nd Street between Madison and Vanderbilt Avenues. There was so much, it already filled the entire block. That told them this was not the routine trash-on-the-tracks fire. It was determined that an electrical fire in the dispatch booth started the blaze that quickly spread. Several features of the shuttle compounded the situation. First, a section of the passenger platform had a wooden deck, and the railroad ties were also wood. Next, there was direct access to the shuttle system from entrances and exits in five buildings. That made it easy, not only for commuters, but also for smoke and heat to enter those buildings. The smoke was so heavy, it traveled up as high as the 20th floor in some cases. But there was only one direct access to the station from the street, making it very difficult to get hose lines down there. In 1964, the FDNY did not supply self-contained breathing apparatus for each firefighter as they do today. This meant that many had to operate both on the street and underground without the benefit of fresh air. As reported by Deputy Chief Patrick Conlisk of the 3rd Division, fires such as this require fire officers to think beyond standard operating procedures. In this case, hose lines were advanced from several directions, including through the ventilation grates in the street as they slowly made their way through the smoke and intense heat. As they advanced, it was noticed that the steel support columns in the tunnel were beginning to buckle. This not only caused a safety concern to the firefighters operating there, it also caused the section of 42nd Street to sink 8 to 10 inches, endangering the fire apparatus above, so they were urgently relocated. The fire required a five-alarm response, with a sixth alarm being transmitted for an influx of fresh firefighters to relieve those who were taking a brutal beating. Given the unprecedented magnitude of this subterranean fire, it was nevertheless brought under control in a little over one hour. The FDNY always takes a lessons learned approach to difficult fires like this, and a number of recommendations were indeed provided. Many of these suggested changes to the design and features of the Grand Central Times Square shuttle. I am happy to report were enacted to minimize the future risk of fires of this magnitude and severity. Factors of which the thousands of commuters that use this vital rail link may be unaware of, but are certainly its beneficiaries. And now it's time for our throwback FDY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What was the name of the first female ambulance surgeon in New York City? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwback FDNY. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. 
Your smoke and carbon monoxide alarms can only protect you if they are in working order. Make sure to test them regularly, and if they have changeable batteries, change them twice a year. When we set our clocks ahead for daylight savings time in the spring, and return them to standard time in the fall. We could all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Until next time, thank you and stay safe.